Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Real Life Theology Podcast. This episode, we will hear from our Associate Director and the Lead Minister of Grace Chapel in Atlanta, Paul Hugabart. We're going to hear from Paul in a selection from a series he did called Living a Better Story. He unpacks several false narratives that the world tells us is the road to happiness. Then he contrasts that with what we can learn from the teachings of Jesus. Stick around and hear the fascinating way that Paul summarizes the last 500 years of church history when it comes to the Christian church narrative and how we can remain relevant in a world that's trying hard to leave us behind. If you want to hear more from Paul, he'll be joining the team in Indianapolis this April for our national gathering. Paul will be unpacking how North America can develop new disciple-making movements with guest speakers like Shadonki Johnson, Curtis Sargent, and Josh Howard. You won't want to miss it. Go to renew.org forward slash events for more information. Now let's hear from Paul and this message about living a better story. We've been a series called A Better Story the last several weeks. It's our series for the month of January. And during this month, I've introduced you, some of you anyway, probably to a series of concepts, some of which you're probably looking at and wondering, why are we studying these things? And what's the purpose of digging digging into ideas like postmodernism and post-Christianity and other things like that? And if you're wondering that question, I actually want to build real quickly a biblical case for why we've been doing this this month. In 1 Corinthians or 1 Chronicles chapter 12, we get this kind of detailed list of how David was building this coalition of people who supported King David, that is, in the Old Testament, was building this coalition of people who supported his right to be king of Israel. God had anointed him king of Israel. He was not yet king of Israel. King Saul was still king of Israel, but God had anointed David. So he was the now but not yet king, but a whole lot of people were lining up behind King David. And in this chapter, we see kind of the merits of the people that were saying, we support David. We believe God is behind him. And there is one verse in 1 Chronicles chapter 12 where we see this little snapshot of this one group of people who's really not mentioned much more than maybe once or twice in all of Scripture. And we see them in this moment being called out or recognized for one very specific thing. And you're going to see on the screen behind me what that is from 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. There were these men from Issachar who came to, came to join David in his cause. And here's what we see recorded. There were men from Issachar who understood the times. And because they understood the times, they knew what Israel should do. There were about 200 chiefs with all their relatives under their command. And so these men from Issachar were commanded not for having all this military power and wealth and military genius. They were commended for understanding the times, knowing what Israel was facing in that moment, and therefore, because of understanding the times, they also understand, understood what to do. Well, I've been making the case this month that we need to understand the story that our culture around us is telling. Because there are a lot of narratives at play in the world around us, and there is one dominant narrative in the world around us, especially the Western world right now, that is leading much of what we see happening in the world and the culture around us. And we've described it this way. We've described it as secular humanism. And I've defined secular humanism this way. Actually, the Oxford Oxford Languages Dictionary defines it this way, that secular humanism is humanism with regard in particular to the belief that humanity is capable 
of morality and self-fulfillment without the belief of God, belief in God. And it's incredibly important for us to understand that that is the, the major flow of the world around us, the culture around us has determined that without God, we're capable of determining what is moral and what is not, what is right and what is wrong. And then the second piece of that is also the determination that we're capable of self-fulfillment. We can find happiness. We can find meaning and purpose. We can arrive at what an understanding of truth is without the need for God. And it's secular humanism that has really led to what we call the postmodern worldview. And you can define the postmodern worldview in many different ways, but I just want to give you three, again, three components or three pillars, really, of the postmodern worldview. The first is this, and if you've been with us this month, you've already heard these. The first is this, that we make our own truth, that you and I, again, you can see how connected that is to the idea of secular humanism. You and I, we have the ability to make our own truth. And it's a very individualistic thing. You see, I have my truth, and then you may have your truth, and somebody else over there has their truth, but we determine it's still all truth. That's true, and that's true, and that's true. You just go live it. Go do it. And then as well, kind of the second pillar is that we make our own meaning in life. We don't need anything else or anyone else to give us meaning. We can make our own meaning in life, and then the last thing is that nothing matters more in life than happiness. You do you. You go find what makes you happy, and you don't let anyone or anything stand in between you and your happiness because that is the meaning and purpose of life. It's just to be happy. So if you hurt someone else on the way to being happy, hey, you were, you were going after what you're supposed to go after in life. It, it's just the purpose is just to be happy. And really, that's led us to where we talked last week about what it means to be living in a post-Christian society. Because you can see that those things that come out of secular humanism, those values and those pillars of postmodernism, they really don't align and connect with the Christian worldview in any way. And that is the dominant flow of our culture at this point in time. So we are living in what many have termed a post-Christian age. And here's the way I defined post-Christian last week. It's to no longer embrace a Christian worldview or accept a lot of the wisdom or Christian values as a rule, or at least what led us to those values. However, what the postmodern or post-Christian world still likes is to enjoy many of the benefits of a society established upon these principles. And last week I used the example of, of oppression. We've, we've all determined at this point in time in the Western world that to oppress, for one people to oppress another is, is wrong. It's just, outright, it's just outright wrong. And we react when we see that happening. When we see oppression happening, we say, that's not right. And we identify that correctly. The Western world still identifies that correctly as a sinful behavior. But we don't want to connect it back to God or to Scripture we struggle to acknowledge that the reason we feel that way is deeply rooted in a Christian value system. Because before Christianity, oppression was a part of the way of life. It was just a part of the way that life happened. It was right for one people to oppress another group because if you were stronger, you had the right to oppress another people group. That was just the way things were. 
So last week, we also talked about the fact that we, we've gotten here through a process of deconstruction. I defined it deconstruction this way, that deconstruction, which happens at the individual level, so as individuals deconstruct their faith or their worldview, it leads us to where together we've moved to this place of post-Christian thought. The deconstruction is the act of piece by piece taking apart a belief system, a worldview, that was once adhered to and then replacing it with another. So we adhered to the Christian worldview. Maybe on the individual level, you adhere to Christianity. A child was raised in a Christian home and then piece by piece just starts to pull apart that faith as doubts creep in and other things happen. And the next thing you know, someone who was once a Christian is no longer a Christian anymore, who's walked away at least from that worldview, embracing that story, that narrative. So again, this month, we've been making the case that we need a better story than the one that the culture around us is telling. We looked last week at the story from John chapter 4 as Jesus meets this Samaritan woman at the well and kind of pulls apart her story. In fact, the way after meeting Jesus, she describes to others that she's talking to, she says to them after having this brief conversation and interaction with Jesus, she says these words, kind of profound. She says, He told me everything I ever did. He told me in a few short sentences the story of my life. And what Jesus said to this woman at this well, this Samaritan woman, he said is, I'm calling you to believe a better story, and it's one that centers on me. And that's true for us too. The better story that we're called to believe centers on Jesus. What Jesus said in a sense to that lady is this, and many of us probably can identify with this as well, as we chase after the things of this world and sometimes join the culture around us in the rat race of life, we may feel as though we've kept coming back to dip water from a well that will never fully satisfy. But the reality is Jesus is offering us living water. That's what he offered to the Samaritan woman that day, and that's what he offers to all of us to have this this spring of living water that flows up from within us and it keeps overflowing. And we don't have to go back to the same thing over and over again to try to satisfy our souls. But I think the case I'm trying to make is this, is that secular secular humanism and and the postmodern worldview have made some big promises. We can certainly see this in the culture around us. Maybe you've experienced this as well. It's secular humanism. and the postmodern world, you have made some really big promises, and those promises have gone largely unfulfilled. We just circle back around to this idea of truth and meaning and happiness. Maybe the promise would go something like this. Go after your truth, your own meaning, And in that, you will be truly happy. We don't have to search very long to find out that that's not true. And maybe in your own life, you can say that's not true. But if we just try to determine statistically, is that true? You know, there's something called a happiness index. It's kind of interesting. I mean, there are people out there that measure just how happy we are. Little survey, a few questions, and they do this from place to place within the world. We're just going to connect with our experience here in the United States. But the happiness index has been measured for quite some time. And if we go back to the 1950s, we'll find that the happiness index, the score that we achieved as a people here in the United States, peaked somewhere 
in the 1950s, 70 years ago. But that since that time, the United States, the score that we achieve collectively as a people on the happiness index has been in steady decline. So much so that uh, the Chicago Tribune, about 15 years ago now, and, and by the way, we've continued to decline. The score on the happiness index has continued to decline. But 15 years ago, the Chicago Tribune, an, an author wrote a story in there that made basically this point, that life was not better in the 1950s, as often people like to claim, well, life was just better then. There have been a lot of modern innovations that probably have made life in many ways, I'd say, better our quality of life in a sense. But what they did determine in writing that article is that we're not happier as a people. A lot of things have happened that maybe should make life better, but it has not made you and it has not made me any happier. And so it really pushes back on this promise, doesn't it? That if we go after our own truth or our own meaning, at that point in time, we will be truly happy. And here are some reasons why I believe that promise has gone largely unfulfilled. I think first, it's this, that this way of thinking has only led us to an unhealthy pursuit of radical individualism. My truth, my meaning, my happiness... My truth matters more than your truth to me. My meaning matters more than my meaning to me. And my happiness matters more than your happiness to me. And so I've become this individual. I'm on an island, isolated from you. We're not working together. We're working against each other in a sense. And what we've been building the case for this month and what many researchers have determined is that this way of thinking has led us to a place where in the Western world, we're at this place of deep relational deficit. We don't have the deep relationships we want, we used to have. What we have is deep relational deficit instead. We have, as a number have termed, a loneliness epidemic. We have, as we made the case for a few weeks ago, an existential meaning crisis. As I share the results from psychologist John Verveke with the University of Toronto, determining that about 20 years ago, most people who took their life on their own did it because it was tied to a mental health disorder or so. And now we're at this place where we've got more people taking their lives because they're lacking for meaning and have determined that there's nothing to this life. We've got a meaning crisis. And what we also have is a radically divided society. No question about that, right? Not hard to look around and determine just how divided we are. But while that all sounds, I think, pretty negative and, and certainly probably feel like a Debbie Downer up here. Maybe you feel like I'm a Debbie Downer. I think there's a beauty to all of this in the sense that it's leading many to declare there must be a better way. There absolutely has to be a better way of doing life, of thinking, of being. 
And as we're telling the story, or as we're sharing in a message series about a better story this month, that is the case that we are trying to make, that there is a better story and a better way of doing life, period. So I want to share you, share with you this morning a quick story out of Scripture. It comes from Luke chapter 19. It's this encounter that, that Jesus has, and we've got songs about this. You know, one of them goes, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man. Right, you know that from vacation Bible school or maybe from class, you know, growing up as a kid about Zacchaeus. He was this wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree to see what he could see. And I think that's where we get stuck many times and we miss what actually happens in this encounter that Jesus has with a man who had figured out or who had determined there had to be a way, a better way of doing life. So if you've got your Bibles, open up, open up to Luke 19. We're going to be in verses 1 through 10. This is what the text says. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Okay, so, so here's this guy who, who had a position of power, a position of influence to some degree, and he also had wealth. And from the outside looking in, you might determine this is a guy who had everything that he could want, everything that he could need. He was the chief tax collector, not just any tax collector, a chief tax collector. And he had lots of money. But we see very quickly that something was missing in his life. Luke goes on to tell us that he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, okay, that part is in the story, he couldn't see over the crowd. So I want you to see this picture. Jesus is coming into Jericho, and here's this guy, Zacchaeus, who'd heard about Jesus. In fact, the stories about Jesus would have spread everywhere, and, and people would have known when he was coming to their town. Here's Jesus and his entourage, the crowds that have been following him, the disciples, everybody going along with him, and he's going from town to town. And people know he's nearing their town. Zacchaeus hears, Jesus is nearing my town. Zacchaeus could have been at a place of self-sufficiency that day and said, I'm wealthy and I'm a big shot. Why do I need this guy? Something was happening in the story of Zacchaeus' life that moved him that day to do something that was undignified for a person of his wealth and stature. Maybe even made him look more like a child than an adult in a sense. Here's what Luke tells us. So Zacchaeus, he ran ahead. As he hears and sees that Jesus is coming, he ran ahead and he found this tree. And what did he do? He climbed up into the tree. And when Jesus reached the spot where Zacchaeus had now climbed up into this tree so that he could see Jesus, just get a glimpse of him, because he was curious because he was wondering if there's something better in life. Well, Jesus looked up and he saw right where Zacchaeus was and he said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately because I must stay at your house 
today. Now, the next piece of the story says that Zacchaeus came down and then once and he welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and they began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. So here's where we learn another piece about Zacchaeus' story. If you're not familiar with the way that tax collectors in Jewish society within the first century were viewed, they were viewed as sellouts. They had sold out to the power and the wealth and the structure of the culture around them in a way that they had compromised who they were. They were collecting taxes for the Roman government and were viewed as people who had betrayed their Jewish or people of God heritage. And so the way that everybody else around Zacchaeus viewed Zacchaeus was just what you see described on the screen behind me. He's a sinner. He's an outcast in a sense. Zacchaeus had traded the stuff of this world for the relationships he could have had with the people of this world. He had sold out in a sense. And I wonder if if Zacchaeus, as he's hearing the murmurings of those around him, if something starts to click in his mind, we already know something was clicking in his heart. Luke doesn't take much time to skip to the next piece and tell us exactly what happened. He says, but Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount Now, that seems kind of drastic and maybe even radical, but I'm certain that Zacchaeus had heard some of the conversations that Jesus had had with other people who had great wealth, the conversations that he'd had with them about maybe selling their possessions, giving them to the poor so that he could come and follow, walk along with him. Maybe Zacchaeus had heard some of Jesus' teachings through others. Maybe he had actually heard Jesus speak before. I don't know what the case was. But there's something in Zacchaeus that clicks in that moment, both in his heart and in his mind. And he says, here's how I have to respond in this moment to the fact that Jesus is willing to be with me. There's no other response. So listen to Jesus' response. Jesus says to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. And then Jesus gives us, in a sense, his mission statement for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So I've got a question for you. Why do you think Zacchaeus responded in such a radical way? Why did he respond that way? I think as we've already been making the case, I think Zacchaeus had a strong suspicion that there had to be a better way of doing life. As he's looking around at his life, I don't know if he'd reached that age of maybe midlife crisis, whatever it was, but he's reached this place where he's taking stock of his life, looking around and saying, there's got to be a better way of doing life. There's got to be a better way of thinking. There's got to be more to life than this, than wealth and power. Those were his issues. We've each got our own, right? But but Zacchaeus had a strong suspicion that there was a better way of doing life. 
in a sense, maybe framing it the way we've been framing it this month, Zacchaeus knew there had to be a better story. Bottom line, there had to be a better story. So let's reconnect with where we started this morning. Again, this this scripture from 1 Chronicles chapter 12. There were these men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. Again, we've been making the case this month that, that you and I, we need to understand the story that the culture around us is telling. But there's more. And maybe we could say it this way. Yes, we need to understand the story that the culture around us is telling and... We also need to understand the way in which the church is being called to respond in this moment in time. So just a quick snapshot, if I could. If I could give you the last 500 years of church history from a 30,000-foot view. Church history, 500 years and three slides. Here we go. So 500 years ago, there was a guy named Martin Luther who, who nailed these 95 theses on this, this door of this, uh, of this monastery where he declared in that moment that things were going to change. And so from there began this period where there were two groups of people who said, well, we're Christians and we're Christians. And really kind of the dominant move of the next couple hundred years was this, what you see on the screen behind me. Let me tell you all the reasons that the Protestant church isn't Catholic. That was kind of the dominant move for a couple hundred years. And then you have kind of our history within this nation. What happened the last several hundred years, we're just going to reframe this just a little bit. Because the next move was this. It's let me tell you all the reasons that my Protestant church is better than your Protestant church. And that was the way we engaged for several hundred years. Let me tell you what became almost irrelevant to people in those, in that two centuries. The conversation about why my Protestant or why the Protestant church is different from the Catholic church. That became irrelevant in a sense. Let me tell you what's becoming irrelevant to the world around us at this point in time. It's this conversation. Now, I'm not going to tell you for one second. There there aren't things in this conversation that don't matter. But it's why we don't begin by having a conversation about doctrine with people who aren't even sure about our worldview. And so here's the move that I believe we are in right now. It's this one. Let me show you why the Christian worldview makes more sense of the reality in which we live than any other worldview. And that's why we we don't start at the place about having the conversation about what role baptism plays in Christian conversion. Does that conversation matter? You better believe it does. Do other conversations about doctrine matter in this moment? Yes. But it's not a question about what matters. It's a question about the conversation that is happening and whether we are relevant in that space or not. Church, the conversation we need to have and what we need to be understanding in this moment is this one. We're now not at a a place where we're battling about doctrines with other people who believe in the Christian worldview. We're now at a place where we're engaging in a space where people say, I don't buy your worldview. I don't even believe your worldview. 
So out of that, let, let's tap the brakes just for a second. And if, you know, if take that illustration of driving a car, we're going to tap the brakes. We're going to look out the side window for just a second, and then we'll come back to this. I think it's important to note there, there are three false sub-narratives that we sometimes believe within the church. A couple of these we've already touched on. The first is this, that the dominant culture in America is the Christian culture. Once true, but not true anymore. And we've got to recognize that. We have to realize that. So that, that's a false sub-narrative that sometimes we are tempted to believe, especially within the church, that, that we just live in a Christian culture. We do live in a post-Christian culture where people still value some of the things that go along with the Christian faith, but they want that apart from God. The second is this, and this is a message directly for us, church. The second false sub-narratives we sometimes believe is that I can live the Christian life while embracing the values of the culture around me. Church, we need a wake-up call to understand that this is not working. This simply isn't working to believe that I can embrace the values of the culture around me and also embrace the values of Jesus when Jesus says, no, you've got to give those things up and come follow me. You've got to let me change you and transform you because I've got something better for you a much better story. And the third one, and this kind of goes along with this, what happens when we believe this last one is that we get to this place where we believe this third false sub-narrative, that if the church is going to reach into culture, the church must narrow the gap between church and culture. And I've talked about this before. You know what happens there, right? We know we can't pull culture toward us, so what do we do? Well, we take a step toward culture. And here God is pulling us back to him, but we take a step toward culture. And we're seeing this true in many churches, and we've probably been guilty of it as time, at times as well. As we've got this desire to, to be closer to culture because we feel like it's just too big of a gap to bridge. And God is saying, trust me. You've got to call people to where I am. Yes, you've got to go to where people are. But you don't stay there yourself, and you don't leave them there either. You bring them to me. So we're called, in a sense, then to bridge the gap, not narrow the gap between church and culture. And so, in a sense, what we're being called to do is this. We're being called to show people why the Christian worldview makes more sense of the reality in which we live, or again, framing it the way we've been framing it, let me show you a better story. Let me show you a different story, a better way of living life. So if you've got the question, because I've had the question and been puzzling through it this week as well, so what, what does a better story look like? What does it actually look like? I'll tell you this, it starts with this. It starts with recognizing that we are called to self-sacrifice instead of self-indulgence. I mean, that is the first piece in the better story. It's, it's like choosing light over darkness. It's that different. And in relation to some of the things we've talking, been talking about, it's, it's this as well. It's, it's understanding that my truth is no substitute for God's truth. 
I'm not even in the same ballpark. And my meaning is ultimately meaningless because only God can bestow meaning and purpose. And here's the truth of what we're seeing in the world around us. Is if I set personal happiness as my target and reason for living, I'm instead charting a course that will ultimately lead to misery. Because the better story centers on the choice to seek and build God's kingdom first as opposed to building my own kingdom and church. This is going to be a bold statement. I recognize that. And probably hard for some to accept, but it's a true statement. The right way is the way of Jesus. And don't miss this church. By, by comparison, everything else is a fraud. But here's why this matters. This whole month, really, as we've been praying Luke 10 and Colossians 4, 2 through 4, we've been asking that God would come and raise up workers for the harvest field. We've been asking that God would open doors so that we could communicate the message, the mystery of Christ to a world that needs this mystery, this thing that is veiled in a sense, but they need their eyes open to it, and we need our eyes open to it as well. So we've been praying for renewal and revival and awakening. But as I look throughout history and throughout the pages of Scripture, here's what else I see. If we want revival, here's how revival begins. It's when the people of God embrace faithfulness to God in a radical way above all else, above everything else. It's in that moment where we determine, I cannot embrace the way of Jesus and the way of the culture around me. I can't do it. But I need the way of Jesus above all else. And so we looked at the story this morning from Luke chapter 19 of a guy who got it in that moment. It clicked. It clicked at the heart level. It clicked at the head level. All of that came together. Because it was as if Zacchaeus understood these words of Jesus from Matthew 13, 44 through 46. So I want to leave you with a little bit of inspiration and then a question here. Here's what Jesus says. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. It's like treasure hidden in a field. And so there was this man going by. He found it. He hid it again. And in his joy over what he'd found, went and sold all that he had so he could buy that field. Jesus says again, the kingdom of heaven. It's like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had so that he could have that pearl. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. That's what the better story of God is like. And that's what it's like when people recognize there's truth to be found in God. And by comparison, everything else is a fraud. So Zacchaeus knew that there had to be a better story. He knew that there had to be a better story. He was looking in at his life and he just knew it. There has to be a better story. He had a strong suspicion again that there was a better way of doing life. And so I've got the question for you and for me. What about us? What about you? As the woman we talked about last week in John chapter 4, the woman at the well, as she realized she'd been dipping into a well that could never fully satisfy, and she'd have to keep going back over and over and over again. 
And as Jesus just told her about that well and the well that he was offering her, the living water that he was offering her, she walks away and she says, he told me everything I ever did. He told me my life story. Have you maybe reached that point in your life where you realize I've been dipping into a well that will never fully satisfy? And there's only one thing that will fully satisfy. Have you reached that place where you realize I've been buying into a lot of the narratives around me, the narratives of culture around me, the narrative of maybe my workplace, whatever it happens to be, but I need a better story in my life. Here's what I can tell you. We need a lot of people like Zacchaeus who are willing to climb a tree to see Jesus, but then who are willing to jump out of that tree when Jesus calls them and say, whatever you ask of me, Jesus, I'm here. Because you've got the only true story.